Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of the Whispering Box Mystery by John Blaine. In this fifth entry in the Rick Brandt Science Adventure series, we find Rick and company back in the mainland U.S. after tromping around the Pacific Islands for many months. The plot concerns a mysterious little black box. It's not a camera, and it's not a gun, and it is capable of dropping a man in his tracks with no more sound than a shrill whisper. This dangerous Stunning weapon is in the hands of the wrong people, as Rick and his pal Scotty soon discover. When secret government files have been stolen by a gang of raiders using the Whispering Box, Rick's father and the other Spindrift Island scientists set up a secret laboratory in Washington, D.C. to develop a counter-weapon. As usual, things get very dangerous very fast for Rick and Scotty, as they discover the thieves-slash-spies really want no interference in their plans. The story was published in 1948, and being only the fifth in the series is probably still the work of Harold Goodwin, who is using the house-publishing pseudonym of John Blaine. And now, The Whispering Box Mystery. Chapter 1. Mystery on Spindrift Rick Brandt can see every detail of the mysterious cabin cruiser. From the corridor window in the north wing of the big Brandt house on Spindrift Island, he looked down into the cove and watched the cruiser maneuver for a landing at the pier. A pair of powerful binoculars showed him the faces of the two passengers and the figure of the man in the pilot house. As the boat swung around for a landing, he read the inscription on her stern. She was the Eleanor II, and her home port was New York. To all appearances, she was just a private motor yacht, a cabin cruiser about 30 feet long, painted white. He watched her tie up and saw the two passengers step to the pier, and he saw his father go down the wooden stairs to the boat landing to meet them. The glasses picked them out clearly. The older man was of middle age, dressed in ordinary gray business suit. The second man was younger, perhaps 25. He wore a soft hat and a brown gabardine suit. He might have been anything from a chemist to a professional athlete. Hartson Brandt greeted the men cordially, and for a moment they stood on the pier chatting. Rick would have given a great deal for the ability to read lips. He was burning with curiosity, and he was irritated. For more than two weeks he had tried to penetrate the veil of secrecy that hung over Spindrift Island, and he hadn't even made a beginning. He knew only that the white cruiser had called several times recently, and that his passengers had spent hours talking with Hartson Brandt behind locked doors. For the first time within memory, his father had not only failed to take Rick into his confidence, but had told him curtly not to ask questions. Rick watched until the trio vanished around the corner of the house. Then he put the glasses in their case and headed for his own room. He walked quietly, because he didn't want anyone to know that he had been spying. 
He was ashamed, but not so ashamed as he was curious. He was a tall boy of college age, with brown hair and eyes. There was a certain springiness in his gait that told of speed when he wanted to stretch his long legs. He moved easily with the natural rhythm of an athlete, and he appeared to be relaxed. The appearance was deceptive, however. People who knew Rick well often noticed that he was never completely still except when sleeping. Even when sitting quietly, his hands were usually busy, frequently with a bit of electrical gear, or perhaps a piece of wire. He sometimes explained that he could think better that way. As he passed the head of the stairs that led down to the library, he heard his father's voice and stopped hopefully. I'm positive there have been no information leaks on the island, the scientist was telling the two strangers. We've been most careful. Only Weiss, Gordon, and Zircon know. We'll go over to the lab in a few minutes and you'll... The library door slammed and put a period to the words. Careful is right, Rick thought bitterly. Always before, he had been more than Hartson Branson's son. He had been his helper and trusted confidant. Now he was left out completely of things, and it hurt. As he opened the door to his room and went in, a husky boy with black hair and dark eyes glanced up. The quick glance took in the binocular case slung over Rick's shoulder and the sulky expression on his usually pleasant face. Don Scott called Scotty grinned. Deduction. Brother Brant has been playing I Spy again, and he hasn't found out a thing, has he? Rick put the glasses on a table and then flopped down on his bed. A lot of help I get from you, he said to his friend sourly. Why don't you give me a hand instead of spending your life in that chair reading horse novels? Scotty put down his book, a lurid bit of fiction called Galloping Guns. Horse novels? You mean Western literature, old son? Better read one yourself. The beat of the hubs will quiet your nerves. Rick stared at the ceiling and didn't reply. Scotty's tone now became serious. Why don't you stop beating your head against the wall? When Dad wants you to know what's going on, he'll tell you. Rick realized the sense of that, but being treated as an outsider rankled him. He might at least give us a hint, he grumbled. He can't, Scotty said positively. What makes you so sure? Because he wouldn't keep anything from us if he could help it. I'll bet that those men, whoever they are, have sworn him to secrecy. What's more, I'll bet that they're government men. Yeah, I figured that out, Rick said. What kind of government men, though? FBI? Secret Service? OSI? What? Search me. Scotty pushed a button on the arm of his chair, and the back flopped down into semi-reclining position. A footrest shot into position. He stretched luxuriously and started to read again. Then, seeing that the light wasn't strong enough, he pushed another button and the reading lamp brightened visibly. The intricately wired leather armchair, like everything else in the room, was a product of Rick's fertile imagination, coupled with his ability to handle electronic equipment. Along one wall ran a workbench topped by cabinets containing parts, wire, tools, soldering irons, and jars of electrical apparatus. Next to the bed was a table with a bank of control buttons that turned on the radio, selected stations, controlled the volume, turned any selection of lights on and off, and opened and closed the windows. Various gadgets around the room included an induction cooker that heated anything placed between its coils, 
an assortment of radios, including a television set, a shortwave receiver for the amateur frequencies, and a compact transmitter. The newest device was a popcorn popper that utilized ultra-high radio waves. Rick was never satisfied. He spent much time making changes and building new equipment. People seeing the room for the first time were invariably awed. They regarded Rick with respect, as a budding genius. Actually, the devices were all simple if one knew the fundamentals of electronics. They were the type of things that almost any competent amateur radio operator, like Rick, could produce with a little ingenuity and a lot of hard work and frequent reference to diagrams and texts. Rick's interest in electronics was natural enough, for Hartson Brandt and the other Spindrift Island scientists were acknowledged leaders in the field of electronic sciences. Rick's ambition was to follow in his famous father's footsteps, and as a result, much of his time was spent in study and experiment, and most of his spending money went for equipment. Scotty, whose abilities ran along other lines, was properly appreciative of Rick's devices. He spent more time in his friend's room than in his own, which was right next door. I still can't see why Dad is leaving us out of things, Rick said unhappily. We've always been included before. I don't like it any better than you do, Scotty replied. But there's nothing we can do, so stop brooding about it. A new voice spoke from the doorway. Who's brooding? Rick smiled up at his sister Barbie, a pretty blonde girl, a year his junior. I am, and you know why. I know. Barbie nodded. It's awful. Mother caught me hanging around the library just now and chased me upstairs. Did you find out anything? Scotty asked. No, and Dad can keep his old secrets. Don't worry, Scotty said dryly. He will. Barbie sat down in a chair next to Scotty. Anyway, that wasn't what I wanted to see you guys about. What I want to know is, what are you going to do about Dismal and that woodchuck? Golly. Rick exclaimed. I'd completely forgotten about Diz. Well, you'd better remember, or Diz'll starve to death, Barbie told him. He won't leave that woodchuck hole long enough to eat. The entire family was amused by the private war between Dismal, the Brant pup, and a large woodchuck that had taken up residence on the island. Mr. Huggins, who ran the Brant farm on the north side of Spindrift, had called on the boys for help, thinking the Scotty would probably dispose of the chuck with his rifle. The boys had taken Dismal with them. The shaggy little dog surprised the woodchuck away from his hole, and the feud began. The chuck completely outwitted the pup, running him in circles, getting him tangled in a bramble patch, and finally leaving him panting at the edge of a burrow. Since then, Dismal had maintained a constant vigil, hoping to catch the woodchuck away from his hole. The problem was complicated by the fact that the burrow had several entrances, many yards apart. Dismal would keep watch at one entrance, only to have the chuck come out another. He would come home at mealtime, only he never thinks about it, Barbie said. If I go down and whistle to him, he'll come, but it's a long walk. Rick asked, Did you try that noiseless dog whistle? Barbie nodded. He can't hear it, it's too far. Wouldn't it be easier for everybody if you just shot the woodchuck? That wouldn't be right, Scotty said. Rick agreed. Think about what a blow it would be to Diz's pride. It would be like saying right out that he wasn't dog enough to handle a mere woodchuck. Barbie considered that. I never thought of that. I guess it wouldn't be right to shoot the woodchuck, 
but we have to do something or Desmond will be nothing but skin and bones. I think he would come to eat if he remembered. Well, you think it's something, Scotty told Rick. You're the scientific mastermind. How about that noiseless whistle, Rick asked. If we could make it louder, Diz would hear it and come home at mealtime. I'll go get it, Barbie said. She ran down the hall to her own room and in a moment returned with the dog whistle. It was a small metal thing shaped like a tube. It was the kind of patent whistle that could be bought in almost any pet shop. The sound it emitted was above the range that a human ear could hear, but was perfectly audible to a dog. Rick studied it for a moment. Trouble is, we can't blow it loud enough. Suppose we use compressed air. How? Scotty asked. Remember those small oxygen tanks we used in the submobile? I could fill one of those with compressed air and then tap the mouthpiece of the whistle so it could be screwed onto the outlet. Then turn the valve and the whistle blows. Sounds good to me. Want to try it? Let's! Barbie exclaimed. Might as well, Rick agreed. He swung to the floor and stood up. Come on over to the lab. I'm coming too, Barbie said. If I stay in the house, somebody will think I'm spying. Scotty grinned. Well, aren't you? Certainly not, Barbie retorted indignantly. Just because I happen to hear a little bit of conversation on the telephone. Both boys laughed. Barbie's principal duty was acting as switchboard operator for the island telephones. When she was on the job, which was not frequently, she loved to listen in on conversations. Rick led the way down the back stairs and across the orchard to the low gray bulk of the laboratory. Through the trees, he could see the slim shape of his yellow cub airplane. He flew almost every day because he was the island messenger service charged with most of the shopping, both for Mrs. Brandt and the scientists. Barbie took his arm. Look! She pointed to where Hartson Brandt and his two mysterious visitors were walking across the path on the outer edge of the orchard. Evidently, they had been at the lab and were returning to the house. Hartson Brandt looked like an older edition of Rick. He was tall and athletic, brown hair sprinkled with gray. Like Rick, he preferred comfortable clothing, and when on the island, always wore slacks and a sweater. He saw Barbie, Rick, and Scotty and waved. His two companions nodded politely. Rick waved back, but not very cordially. I wonder what they were doing at the lab. Turf inspection, Scotty guessed. Visitors always want to see the lab. And that was true enough. People were always interested in seeing the laboratory, where so many important advances in the electronic sciences had been made. But Rick didn't think that was the reason for this particular visit. The strangers could have seen the lab on any of their previous visits to Spindrift. They reached the building and went to the main door. Oddly, it was closed. Rick turned the knob and pushed, but nothing happened. It's stuck, he said, but even as he spoke, he knew it wasn't stuck. It was locked. Better knock, Scotty said. His forehead wrinkled thoughtfully as he stared at the closed door. Rick rapped sharply. In a moment, the door opened, but only partially. Hobart Zircon looked out. The scientist, whose reputation was almost as great as that of Hearts and Brands, was a huge man with a barrel chest and a low, booming voice. He and Rick and Scotty were the best of friends, old comrades of many far trails and dangerous situations. Afraid of burglars? Rick asked jokingly. 
He started to enter, but amazingly, Zircon blocked his way. Sorry, Rick, he rumbled. He seemed embarrassed. Rick couldn't believe it. He was as much a part of the lab as Zircon or Hartzenbrandt himself, and all of it was open to him. He was free even to use the most delicate equipment. He had practically grown up in this lab. He asked incredulously, You mean you're not going to let us in? Hobart, Zircon's voice boomed out from behind the gradually closing door. Really sorry, guys, but those are orders. You can't come in. None of you. Chapter 2. The Deadly Whistle Rick was literally stunned. He turned to Barbie and Scotty, and he just couldn't say anything. Neither could they. Scotty's mouth was wide open with surprise, and Barbie's blue eyes were wide. The unexpected had struck Rick Brandt forcefully a number of times before. However, the unexpected was part of adventuring. One came to realize the strange places always brought the unusual. Similarly, however, one had the right to expect serenity and a certain consistency in the sequence of events at home. And that's why the shock of realizing the familiar rooms of the laboratory were barred to him was much greater to Rick than anything that might have happened on an expedition. Barbie found her voice first. She sounded very subdued. Golly, I never thought anything like this could happen. None of us did, Scotty said. But it's happened. Now what do we do? Nothing. Rick was getting angry now. The least that was due them was some word of explanation. Take it easy, Scotty said. Don't do or say something you're going to regret later. Barbie nodded agreement, her eyes on Rick. Okay, he agreed reluctantly. I won't fly off the handle. But when the explanation comes, it had better be a darn good one. It will be, Barbie said hurriedly. Rick, what are we going to do about Dismal? That was Barbie's way of changing the subject. He grinned at his sister. We'll do just what we planned. He rapped on the laboratory door again. With the door open this time, it revealed a short, stocky man with close-cropped gray hair. This was Professor Gordon, who had been with the boys on the recent expedition to Quangara Island in the western Pacific. He smiled at Rick. Didn't Zircon tell you the orders? Yes, sir, Rick said. I don't want to come in. I just wondered if you could do something for us. Gordon consulted his watch. Glad to, if it doesn't take more than fifteen minutes. I have something cooked in the annealer that'll take just that long. Rick was sorely tempted to ask questions, but he choked them back. This won't take more than five. He handed the dog whistle to the scientist. Will you thread the inside of this so it'll fit on an oxygen bottle nozzle and then charge the bottle with compressed air? An ultrasonic whistle, eh? All right, Rick, wait here. I'll bring it out to you. What's ultrasonic? Barbie asked as the door closed. It's the sound that's beyond the range of human hearing, Rick explained. Birds and dogs and lots of things can hear sounds that people can't. That's how the whistle works. It makes a sound just above our hearing range. I don't know why they couldn't make one so that we could hear it just like the dog could hear it, Barbie said. It's mostly for people who have dogs in the city, Scotty told her. They don't want to annoy their neighbors by blowing a loud whistle when they want to call their dogs, so they get these silent ones. Rick's thoughts were far away. 
I wonder, he mused absently. Fifteen minutes at the annealing furnace. That's what he said. What could he be working on? Something made of glass, Scotty guessed. That's what the annealing furnace is for. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's plastic, Rick hazarded. Or maybe a special condenser for something? Dad originally got that furnace for making his own electronic condensers. Rick, someday we'll find out what it is, okay? Scotty replied. They'll get around to telling us. Yeah, but by then all the excitement will be over. Barbie laughed. Now I know what's bothering you. It's not the idea that Dad is keeping secrets. You're just afraid you're missing something. Rick grinned sheepishly. There was a lot to what Barbie had said. He hadn't had much excitement since the scientists had returned from the Pacific after exploring the sea bottom off Quangara, a hundred fathoms down. Listen, Scotty exclaimed suddenly. From the other side of the island, there was the sound of an engine turning over. Rick listened critically. It wasn't one of the Spindrift motorboats. He knew both of their engines. It must be the white cruiser. I guess Dad's company has left. They didn't stay very long this time, said Rick. Long enough to get us locked out of the lab, Scotty said. I'd give a pretty penny to find out who they are. And you're the boy who wasn't curious, Rick scoffed. I never said that, chum. I just said there wasn't any use trying to find out things until somebody was ready to talk. I'm plenty curious. So am I, Barbie agreed. What if we went to see Dad now? We could ask him why we can't go into the lab. Nothing doing, Rick said flatly. I tried to ask him about this business once, and he just said not to ask questions. He didn't even tell me why I wasn't supposed to ask him. Check, Scotty said. We'll concentrate on helping Diz until they decide to let us in on whatever it is. At that moment, Professor Gordon opened the lab door and handed Rick the oxygen bottle with a whistle attached. Here it is. Don't turn it on too loud. We'll have every dog on the mainland heading this way unless that thing explodes on you. Rick accepted it with thanks and then tucked it under his arm. Let's go back to the house and try it. If we can't hear it, how do we know it's working? Scotty asked. That's easy, Barbie said. If Diz hears it, he'll come. If he doesn't hear it, he won't come. Even you should have been able to figure that one out, Scotty, Rick jibed. Takes a simple mind to figure out such simple things, Scotty said loftily. I'm used to figuring out things that are hard. They had reached the back door of the house. Go ahead, try it, Rick, Barbie said. If it doesn't work, I'm going to go get Diz. He didn't show up at lunchtime, and he didn't need a thing this morning. All right. Rick examined the device to make sure the whistle was on tight. The oxygen bottle, charged now with compressed air, was a small metal container that terminated in a valve and nozzle. The dog whistle was screwed tightly to the nozzle. Here goes, he said, and turned the valve. At first, there was only the sound of escaping air, and then, with a loud pop, the dog whistle split. Rick hastily shut off the air and regarded the cracked metal ruefully. Too much pressure. That dog whistle thing couldn't take it. Now what do we do? Barbie asked, disappointed. Take turns going to get Diz at mealtime, Scotty said. When science fails, we have to go back to the old-fashioned way. We'll get Diz by Ankle Express. Science hasn't failed yet, Rick insisted. 
I'll think of something. While you're thinking, I'm going to go get Diz. Barbie started off down the path that led to the farm. Wait a minute. I'll go with you. You going to come, Rick? No, you go ahead. I'll hang around here. Maybe I can dream something up. He went back to his room while Barbie and Scotty headed for the garden plot on the far side of the farm. There had to be some way of making an ultrasonic whistle that Diz could hear. If only he had another whistle. But maybe that wasn't necessary. Air forced through a hole made a noise. If the pressure were powerful enough, it would be a loud noise. Also, if the aperture were tiny, the sound would be high. He let the remaining air out of the oxygen bottle and examined it. This thing wasn't built for too high pressure, so it wouldn't do. But how else could he get pressure? He went to a closet and dragged out a box of odds and ends, prowling through it in search of an idea. He discarded an old transformer and similar junk. A regular police whistle turned up, but he discarded that too. Little by little, he emptied the box until only small things, like bits of wire and an accumulation of buttons, were left. Then, almost hidden under the rest, he saw a bright red bit of fluff. He took it out and looked at it, and an idea began to form. The fluff was the feathered tip of a tiny dart, designed to be shot from an air pistol. He couldn't remember how much pressure was built up in the pistol, but he knew it was a lot. He pushed the accumulated junk back in the box and then went to his dresser and found the pistol in the bottom drawer. It was a pretty simple device, built in the shape of an ordinary pistol. A lever pumped air into a false barrel directly under the barrel through which the dart traveled. By squeezing the trigger, the air was released, and the dart shot out with terrific force. Rick had stopped using the pistol for target practice because it wasn't accurate. First, though, he had tried to revamp it, threading the tip of the barrel to take an extension on the theory that the longer the barrel, the greater the accuracy. It hadn't worked out. He juggled the pistol in his hand and thought it over. Here was his compressed air supply. Now, if he could attach a whistle... His forehead wrinkled as he wrestled with the problem. I've got it, he said aloud. He could take a round piece of ordinary rolled steel, drill it out, and tap it so it would screw over the barrel, making a solid plug. Then if he drilled a tiny hole, pinpoint size through the plug, it would be the only way for the air to escape. If the pinhole were small enough, he ought to get an ultrasonic sound, and a good loud one, too. He was halfway down the stairs carrying the pistol when he remembered that the lab machine shop was barred to him. Besides, more than 15 minutes had elapsed and Gordon would be busy. Rick went back into the house and he called the lab from the switchboard and asked for Gordon. Yeah, Rick. Sorry to bother you, sir. Could you do something else for me? What's that? Rick outlined his needs, and in a moment Gordon answered. I don't have the time, Rick, but Julius Weiss says he can do it for you if you hurry right over. Coming then, Rick said, and hung up. Professor Julius Weiss, a small, thin scientist who looked more like a bookkeeper than the astute mathematician that he was, stood in the doorway waiting. He examined the pistol, and his eyes twinkled at Rick from behind his glasses. Still inventing, eh? All right, I'll plug the opening for you. How big do you want the hole in the plug? I don't know. How small can you make it? Would a thousandth of an inch diameter do? Rick grinned. Oh, yeah, that should. 
All right, it will take me about 20 minutes. Rick watched the door close and then sat down on the lab steps. It was a funny feeling being locked out. Plenty of secret experiments had gone on behind locked doors in the laboratory, but always before he had been in on them. The Greystone building had been built by the government during the war as an experimental laboratory under Hartz and Brandt's direction. The Spindrift scientists had conducted research into radar and other electronic fields. Then, with the war's end, the government had planned to tear down the lab buildings. But Hartson Brandt and his fellow scientists had teamed up and won the Stone Ridge Prize for electronic development, thus enabling the Spindrift Group to buy the lab from the government and continue their research as an independent scientific foundation. From the very beginning, Rick had worked in the lab, doing odd jobs and gradually acquiring the skill of a trained technician. Now, for reasons he could not fathom, he had to wait on the steps while one of his friends did a small machining job for him. He would have liked to try pumping Zircon Weiss for Gordon, but his pride prevented him. They had excluded him. All right, fine. He would say excluded until they decided to tell him what it was all about. In something less than 20 minutes, the door opened. Julius Weiss sat down on the steps next to Rick, turning the air pistol over in his hands. The end of the barrel was now tightly plugged with shining steel, only an opening the size of a pinpoint provided a vent for the air. Interesting arrangement, Weiss said. What are you going to do with it? Rick explained briefly about Dismal and his feud with the woodchuck. I hope he'll be able to hear this, he finished. Weiss polished his glasses thoughtfully. I wonder. You'll get an ultrasonic sound, yes, but I'm afraid it may be well above Dismal's hearing range. It's true that dogs can hear higher sounds than humans, but even their range doesn't go very much above 25,000 cycles, if that far. How high do you think the sound from this will be? Weiss shrugged. There's no way of telling without measuring the wavelength of the sound. I suggest you try it, though. However, I'd be surprised if Dismal could hear it. I'll let you know how it works, Rick promised. Thank you, sir. He took the pistol and walked along the path that led to the farm. Barbie and Scotty hadn't returned with Diz. He would have seen them from the lab steps if they had. He skirted the orchard, then hiked along the edge of the woods that covered most of the southern side of the island. The garden patch where the woodchuck had taken over was on the back side of the island. He was almost there before he saw Barbie and Scotty. They were hiding behind a large oak tree peering out at something in the field. Rick went into the woods and circled, so he came up behind them. He didn't know what they were watching, but he didn't want to upset their plans. Scotty heard him and turned, a wide grin on his face. Watch this, he whispered, but don't make any noise. Rick looked out from behind the tree and took in the situation at a glance, and then he grinned too. The woodchuck, a large, Sleek specimen was sitting upright in the very center of the lettuce patch. A mound of dirt told Rick that he was on the edge of the entrance to his burrow. A few yards away behind the woodchuck, a shaggy little dog crouched, and he was worming his way toward the chuck, belly close to the ground. Dismal was evidently planning to get within charging range before making a quick dash that would catch the woodchuck unaware, he hoped. Rick, Barbie, and Scotty watched amused at Dismal's careful but quite useless strategy. 
What Dismal didn't realize was that the woodchuck's eyes, set toward the sides of his head, were like a rabbit's and could see perfectly well what was going on. The shaggy puppy finally reached a point only a half dozen yards from the chuck, and Rick saw his legs gather under him. He's got a charge, he whispered, just as Diz rushed. The pup flew across the patch, all four legs driving like pistons. The woodchuck sat perfectly still, head turned just the slightest bit. Then, just when it seemed that the pup had him, he tumbled headlong into his hole. Dismal's teeth closed on air with an audible click. He let out a growl of frustrated anger and stumbled over the mound of dirt and skidded nose first to a stop. The three watchers could restrain their laughter no longer. Diz sat up and listened and then ran toward them, tail wagging sheepishly. Tough luck, old fella, Rick greeted him. You almost had that chuck for a minute, didn't you? Almost is right, Scotty grinned. Did you see that woodchuck dive? For the first time, Barbie noticed the pistol in Rick's hand. Are you going to shoot the woodchuck? She asked. Rick shook his head. It's a new system. I want to try it out. He explained the theory of its operation. Well, let's see if it works, Scotty suggested. But don't get too close to Diz. Sound might deafen him. Good idea, Rick agreed. He bent down and patted the shaggy pup. Dismal, pleased at the attention, rolled over and played dead, all four legs in the air. It was his only trick, and he performed it with the slightest nod from anybody. Wait here, Rick instructed him. Sit down, pup. Dismal obediently sat, panting expectantly. Rick, Scotty, and Barbie walked away from him to a distance of about fifty feet. Rick, meanwhile, pumping the lever, had charged the gun with compressed air. Far enough, Rick said. He aimed the air pistol at a point well over Dismal's head and pulled the trigger. There was a faint hiss of escaping air, and then Barbie let out a sudden scream. Dismal was shuddering as though from a physical impact. His head drooped and a quiver ran through him. Then he collapsed in a little furry heap on the ground and lay still.